Hello and welcome to this vidcast, which is dedicated to the wave of oil acquisitions currently observed in the United States. We will discuss some financial metrics around the valuation of reserves, but also turn our attention to the probable consequences of these operations on the economic governance of the country. A few announcements to start with. A few days ago, the 23rd of October 2023, Chevron announces buying Hess for 53 billion US dollars. It's an all stock transaction. It's paid in shares, not a dollar of cash out. A few days before, the 11th of October, ExxonMobil announced buying Pioneer Natural Resources for 60 billion dollars. Again, paid in shares. Both are all stock transactions. When you observe the evolution of their stock prices, it's absolutely clear that the capital markets don't like these operations. When ExxonMobil makes the announcement, the stock price is down by 4.1%. When Chevron makes its own announcement, a few days later, the stock price is immediately down by 5.5%, then it's going to stabilize more or less, and then there's another drop by 7%. So definitely, capital markets don't appreciate very much these strategies. ExxonMobil and Chevron belong to the same industry, oil and gas. And they don't share only that. They also share their financial strategy. Low debt, marginal debt, equity finance companies, returning cash to shareholders, a massive dividend, growing dividend, and also massive share buybacks. As far as ExxonMobil is concerned, in 2022, the company paid a dividend of $15 billion and bought back its shares for another $15 billion. So you return $30 billion to the shareholders. Chevron, 2022, dividend $11 billion, shares buyback $5 billion. So these returns to the shareholders are quite significant. Let's start with a little bit of history. Chevron is a result of the merger between Standard Oil of California and Gulf Oil, which happened in the mid-80s. This is one of my favorite studies, and this is why in February 2020, I produced a vidcast on T-Bone Pickens, who had passed away shortly before. And Pickens was more or less the initiator of the merger between SoCal and Gulf Oil because he tried to make a takeover, hostile takeover on Gulf Oil. Having observed that the value of the oil reserves was significantly more than the enterprise value. Then what do you do? You buy the company, you extract, you produce, you generate revenues out of that. And for the rest of it, you simply abandon and you cash in the value of the reserves. But I have to add some additional historical comment about what happened before. Before Standard Oil of California, it was Standard Oil, with a very, um, I would say, specific gentleman whose name was John Davidson Rockefeller. Rockefeller was obsessed by customers, quality, pricing, services, and so on and so forth. So he wanted to create value for the customers, but at the detriment, at the expense of the value and the relationship with the stakeholders. In fact, the business practices of Standard Oil with uh, the partners, with the suppliers, with the competitors, were absolutely questionable. Very much criticized 
And at the end of the day, the Court of Justice decided that there should be a stock split. It was implemented in 1911, and there was a dissolution of the 31 firms, which these 31 firms became autonomous on a legal and financial point of view. And then we are created Standard Oil of Ohio, Standard Oil of California, Standard Oil of New Jersey. And by the way, Exxon was Standard Oil of New Jersey. As a matter of fact, the empire was absolutely split, dismantled. But what we can observe at the moment is a kind of reconstitution of this empire. Let's go back a minute on the reserves, because it's going to have a huge impact on the valuation. Before the hostile takeover of Pickens on Gulf Oil, the companies were just providing physical communication on their reserves. The number of barrels, the number of cubic meters of gas, and so on and so forth. But the tricky part of the takeover launched by Pickens and Gulf Oil is that he made a bid based on their financial value, discounted cash flows. The stock price of Gulf Oil at the very beginning of the process is about $40 per share. If you decide only to extract the oil reserves without investing a dollar in renewing the reserves, the value which you get is about 100 plus dollars per share. So you buy at 40, you extract, you cash in, and you make 60 dollars abandoning the company at the end. This is why after this big financial battle, the companies in the oil and gas business started communicating not only about barrels and cubic meters, but about discounted cash flows. What is the net present value of the reserves if we simply extract? And of course, to calculate the net present value, you calculate cash flows, but you discount them. And the weighted average cost of capital, which is used by ExxonMobil and Chevron today, is 10%, which is normal business practice. Now, to evaluate a company, to evaluate a business, to calculate an enterprise value, you have to sum the value of the existing assets inside the company and add the present value of what's going to be generated by the future assets. The existing assets, very simple, straightforward. It's about the oil reserves. What about future assets? Oh, it's going to be about new businesses, diversification, new vertical business segments, and so on and so forth, plus the result of future exploration investment in the renewing of the reserves. Now, what is interesting in the reserve is that there is a kind of optional dimension. The oil reserves are real options. When you want to calculate a value creation, you calculate a net present value, the present value of the cash flows, net of the capex, the investment, and so on and so forth. But there is another concept in real option thinking, which is the augmented net present value. Augmented means that you can add some value just being clever in the management of the project. In the case of oil reserves, you're not supposed to extract each and every day the same volume. No, you're going to adjust the rate, the rhythm of extraction to changes in market prices. Very simply, if the oil prices are higher, you accelerate. If it is lower, well, you slow down because you don't want to spoil your reserves selling at a low price. You prefer to maximize your revenues. Then you understand that to evaluate the reserves, there are very important factors, including price of oil and interest rates. The price for the cash flow, the interest rate for the WAC. Let's start with the WAC. 
For the calculation of the work, the weighted average cost of capital, ExxonMobil and Chevron, as debt is absolutely negligible in both cases, the cost of capital is the cost of the one unique and fundamental financial resources, which is equity. So it's a cost of equity capital. And then cost of equity capital is supposed to be 10%. Using the capital asset pricing model, the cost of equity is long-term government bond rate plus the beta systematic risk coefficient multiplied by the equity market risk premium. Equity market risk premium is about 6% in New York Stock Exchange and the beta is one or a little bit more than one for ExxonMobil and Chevron, roughly 1.5 for Hess and Pioneer because they are smaller. There's a kind of premium for the size in the beta. But what is quite difficult to assess is which interest rate do we take for the government bond rate? Today, it's about 5.5%. But a couple of years ago, it was close to zero. And what about tomorrow? What a kind of long-term perspective for this interest rate. Now, let's make the calculation. Again, WAC equals cost of equity. Risk premium, New York Stock Exchange, 6%. If we take 5.5% as a risk-free rate, the WAC will be 5.5% plus 1.1, a bit more than 1, multiplied by 6%, and you get a bit more than 12%. Now, if you communicate the value of the reserves, at 10% and the cost of capital is 12, well, the discount rate is too low and in fact you have over-evaluated the reserves. But 5.5 might be a kind of short-term evolution of the interest rate. And what about the long-term? You understand that the objective of the Federal Reserve is to bring the inflation down to 2%. Historically, when you observe the bond rates, it's about inflation plus 1%, more or less. Then 2 plus 1 is about 3%. And if you add 1.1 times 6 to 3%, you get 9.6. And it's quite close to 10%. So no big deal about the discount rate. The big question is definitely about the oil price. If you look at the evolution of oil prices over the last 20 years, beginning of the year 2000, we are in a range between, say, 10 and 30 dollars then the prices are going to go skyrocketing. And in the middle of the subprime crisis, it's going to be 140. Then there is a massive drop, and then it's up again, and back down, and down to $20 in 2020, and then up to 110. And it seems to be quite stabilized around 80, 81, $82. Of course, I'm not going to make any forecasts on the future of the oil prices, but what's interesting is to observe the last two years. It's about $80 at the end of 2022 when the companies are producing their annual report. It's about the same today. So there is no significant change between 2022 and today. But there is a very significant increase from 2020, 2021 to 2022. And this shows in the value of the reserves, which is produced and communicated by these two companies. Let's start with ExxonMobil. The value of the reserves for ExxonMobil, as it shows in the annual report 2021, is $153 billion. It's going to go up to 259 in 2022. It's an increase by 69%. Pioneer, it's a lower value, of course, but their growth rate is 36%. Chevron, 64%. The same as ExxonMobil and probably for the same reasons. And what about Hess? Hess is going to move up from 11 
to 21. It's an increase by 91%. So it's a dramatic increase. Why? Not because of interest rates. It's a dramatic increase because of increase in the price of oil. But what is very interesting now is to relate the enterprise value of the companies and the value of their reserves. For ExxonMobil, the enterprise value today is about $435 billion. And the value of the reserves is 259. So enterprise value divided by value of the reserves is 1.7, which basically means that $100 is due to the reserves and $70 is due to future assets in a calculation of the total value of the company. The same indicator, enterprise value divided by value of reserves, is 1.6 for Pioneer, quite the same as ExxonMobil. For Chevron, it's 1.4, a bit less. And for Hess, it's 2.5. So Chevron is paying $52 billion to buy $21 billion of reserves and $31 billion of something which is not identified today. This is very likely one of the reasons why Chevron is going to be very much penalized by capital markets. Financial markets are, to say the least, quite skeptical about value creation. And what's interesting to observe is that Shell and British Petroleum, they are not going to move at all. They are going to say, we are not going to follow the crowd. We manage our existing assets. We don't want to enter this kind of acquisition game, which is destroying value. That was about the financial metrics. Now let's move to the other item, which is quite important, economic governance. In fact, when you see all these companies in the oil and gas industry, which are growing and growing and growing, it's a kind of return to standard oil. Of course, you don't return fully to standard oil because it would be absolutely unsinkable to consider a new standard oil with its power and size. But it is a reconstitution of the empire. It's very interesting to observe business economics and the evolution of industry organization in the United States. You very often start from monopolies, then you fragment the monopoly, you split the monopolies, and then little by little, there will be a change and you get back to a kind of restricted oligopoly. American Telephone and Telegraph was the one and unique company operating in as a telecommunication operators at the beginning of the 80s. Then there was a split, and this company is split into the regional bell operating company. And then progressively, little by little, the new AT&T, much smaller than the initial one, is going to grow again. There will be another player in the game whose name is Verizon, very big player in the mobile business. There's a third one, which is smaller but growing by merger and acquisition, whose name is Sprint. And then you understand that you have a very limited number of players for a very big market. What is the impact on the quality? What is the impact on the prices? What is the impact on the quality and the diversity of services which are offered to the customers? You understand that with a limited number of players, it looks like a kind of gentleman sport rather than tough competition so that you can create more value for the customers. Same story for the oil and gas industry. You start with standard oil and then progressively you create a picture of restricted oligopoly. Obviously, this has an impact on the intensity of competition and value creation for the customers, but this also has an impact on lobbying. 
there is a very limited number of actors in the fossil energy business in North America. And their power is very big. Their financial power is increasing. Now, you understand that fossil energy is subject to negotiations, regulations, because of their impact on climate change. But all these companies are contributing to the financing of political parties. So they are quite strong in some decisions which are going to be taken by actors, by the lawmakers. So definitely in terms of lobbying, what is currently happening has an impact on political decisions. It has an impact on climate change and management of energy transition. This issue is so big that the New York Times decided to offer as a main title ExxonMobil's pioneer acquisition is a direct threat to democracy. This is a very violent statement, very brutal statement, dated October the 18th. This is obviously linked with the fact that lobbying is so important for lawmakers and business operations. Now, behind that, there is a little bit of economic thinking. Liberalism and competition. It has always been a very important economic issue, a very big economic subject. One of my favorite economists, maybe my favorite economist, is Adam Smith, who was living during the 18th century. He was an economist, but he was also a moralist. Of course, people in charge of free trade and very tough liberalism, they all say he was in favor of the invisible hand. The invisible hand means that there will be a kind of stabilization of the market and it is supposed to be good. Now, Adam Smith used to take the example of the baker and the government. There are different kinds of bakers, the ones who produce good bread and the ones who produce bad bread. The government is not in charge of making the split. The government is not in charge of telling you how you have to produce, manufacture and sell your bread. Then the market, the invisible hand, which is basically the customer, will make the difference between the good and the bad baker. The bad will disappear and the good will remain. But the invisible hand is not supposed to manage everything. Of course, each and every subject which is relevant for the sovereignty of the country is dealt by the government. It's about the army, it's about uh, the police, it's about the justice. But to this very classical and traditional list, Adam Smith was adding education, health and infrastructure. Education should be accessible to each and every person in the country. It should be affordable on a financial point of view. Health, exactly the same. Accessible to everybody, affordable to everybody. Last but not least, the quality of the infrastructure is going to improve the efficiency of the economic life of the country. But a very important point, Adam Smith was extremely afraid of what he was naming the large corporations. These corporations which have a tendency to grow and to grow to gain in power, to gain in influence and to influence the decisions made by the lawmakers and the governments. It was very much afraid that large corporations destroy competition and impose their lobbying power to the lawmakers again. So you understand that Adam Smith had a very clear vision about the dangers the threats 
of the evolution of liberalism. Now you can take two perspectives on these operations. A perspective is about shareholders. What about value for the shareholders? Oh, it's great. A loss in value. A value distraction of $50 billion stock price, market cap, evaporated in the sky. So as far as financial markets are concerned, this is no good news. What about the economic and ecological environment? There's a very, very big question mark. Because when you create or recreate these large, big corporations, it's at the expense of economic efficiency. And it is probably something at the detriment of the sustainability of the planet as far as climate change is concerned. A very big question mark. Thank you very much.